Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. From the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 1.11 This was my zookeeper's son's favorite verse as a child, and I heard his pre-broken voice echoing across the space at St. George's when the priest used it as a prelude to his final blessing at Vespers last Sunday. I racked my brains trying to place it as I couldn't find it in the prayer book in my hand. At home I thumbed through our well-used Book of Common Prayer, and there it was, not in evening prayer, but in the noonday prayer. The Lord of Hosts talks about the rising and the setting of the sun, suggesting a period of time when his name will not be great among the nations. In other translations, it reads, from the furthest east to the furthest west, which helps with the clarity. Think about it, if we travel far enough east, we'll end up west and vice versa. So the Lord of Hosts' name will be great among the nations, always. During Queen Victoria's reign, it was said that the sun never set in the British Commonwealth. And does it ever really? Only to be rising again somewhere else. The Lord says, always his name will be great. Is this a command to associate greatness with his name always? Or is it a statement that with his name comes greatness? Either way, we're compelled to listen and act. Do we? Try to focus on the Lord for a part of your day. As I always said to the children, you don't have to be walking around with a Bible or have a serious look on your face with your hands carefully folded in prayer to show people you are an obedient, God-fearing follower of the Lord. I've seen folks with radiant smiles on their faces. Like Wilbur, he was radiant, my oldest son would say, for he was Wilbur that year. And I wonder, why are they smiling so contagiously? Perhaps they're meditating on the beauty of the world and finding God in the ordinary, my favorite place to find him. Smile and offer all you do to the Lord. That is a prayer which will keep you safely beside your Creator. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNinney. My guest this week is my zookeeper son, Simon McNinney, who's just returned from Florida, where he spent a week working with Steve Martin not the actor. Stay tuned to find out more. I'm going to be talking a little about managing on one job, school reunions, and a dance festival called Move It. So put the kettle on and your feet up and join me for an hour of positive reinforcement in your homeschool from the sunny isles of Britain. In all the years since I left my boarding school, I've been back once, briefly for a visit, not a reunion, with all my children. I was familiar enough with the house because I had lived there for seven years, but things had changed, and apart from being able to show my children some of the secret hallways and forbidden ways out onto the roof, there really wasn't much love lost between me and my former alma mater. Last year I was quite thrilled to discover that my 30-plus reunion was coming up, and I was going to be here to attend, something that had never happened before in all my travels to England. In the past, the reunions weren't for particular years, as the school was so small, and anyone who was in the vicinity simply showed up. But recently, they've become more organized, so all the old girls had left. 
all the old girls who had left in the year ending in a two were invited, and that was me. I volunteered to locate my five classmates, all of whom had been located, and was the first to sign up to attend. Then I discovered that the calculations were being made for all girls who left school at sixteen, not eighteen. So, in fact, my year-end number would be zero, not two. After all, I'd missed my special get-together by two years, but I was told I was still welcome. Why? No one would be there who I knew. They'd all be either years younger than me or years older. On further reflection, I decided I didn't want to go anyway. I really had nothing in common with the girls I went to school with, except for the seven years we'd spent together under one roof. We haven't spoken since leaving. There has to be a reason for that. Twelve of them had left at sixteen. I'd stayed on for the university track, so the five I was left with were considered blue stockings. My parents wouldn't hear of me doing anything else, and they made it quite clear that once I'd finished with college, my obligations towards them and theirs towards me were fulfilled. The school itself may have been a lovely old house with beautiful grounds in the countryside of Buckinghamshire, but it was not where I wanted to be at twelve or at sixteen, and it completely ruined the family, in my opinion. And I spent the next five years I was there and at college making the best of it. If not the most, and vowed never to return to the school once I got away. To read some of the old girls' accounts in our newsletter, I was the only one who felt that way. It seems that everyone else put Thornton down as the best years of their lives. The best years of my life began after I left. Let's keep it like that. As a footnote, I never returned to my college either. And if you'd have told me then that I'd end up homeschooling my children, you'd have heard my laugh clear across London. I had ideas of my own, and talking of school reunions, it occurred to me while I was walking along with a fox on the other side of the road that I needed to check on my children's graduation dates from Wildflower Academy, because I feel sure someone has a ten-year coming up soon. I don't have a file on hand, but I think they'll know. Their principal says he'll be the only one at his ten-year reunion, and I was thinking about that too, and decided that each of them graduated in the month of May. So, if it wasn't their tenth anniversary, it may well be their fourth, their sixth, or their eighth. I'll work it out. I don't think it happens till next year anyway, and I was never one to bring school into the home. I'll probably just have a family dinner with the required bottle of champagne. This weekend is going to be a busy one for my daughter. She's taking part in a three-day event called Move It at Earl's Court Olympia Exhibition Halls. There are going to be a hundred and twenty thousand dancers in this one venue. It promises to be an amazing festival. It's the largest dance event in the UK and features schools, colleges, companies, agents, and famous choreographers and dancers who will perform and give masterclasses to students and teachers. Of course, there'll be booths to strut their stuff, and my daughter spent the last few weeks working on auditioning for dancers to be included in the event. She'll also man their booth, and with her pretty American accent, has been told she'll add an international flair and help boost the college's global image. Will we get a reduction in fees? I doubt it, but Malia will have a fantastical weekend, I'm sure. Her college performs three times, once a day, and we are thinking about going to see her. But the tickets are quite pricey for a three-minute dance. I think actually one of them might be ten minutes. And what are we going to do? Looking around a load of dance booths, so we may not go. Now, if it was a homes and garden exhibit or the Chelsea Flower Show, which Olympia is famous for. Be a different kettle of fish. We'll just have to wait and see what she wants. 
But we are going to take her to see the Lady Killers tomorrow night while she's here. And since she's opted to stay with us and not in a hotel, I'm sure we'll have some good meals. And you may wonder why I say that. Well, my blue-eyed cowboy always tells Malia to come home so that he can eat. We tend to be on a food standoff in the mornings. After our devotions and cups of tea, we get to working on our respective computers. And depending on what's going on in Cyberland or our books we're writing, we may not think to get up and eat breakfast or even lunch for that matter. Then I'll go off for a walk to clear my head and come home dying for a cup of tea. We'll have a biscuit and then we won't be hungry for dinner. And when we do eat dinner, it's usually a salad or heaps of veggies. We tried beans and lentils one week, but they wrecked havoc with the system. At one point, my Texan wondered if we were going vegan. Oh, we're feeling better, though, and have lost some weight, which, after all the summer cream teas, was a necessary accomplishment. So, goody, Malia comes home and we can cook this weekend. I'm glad I've had this time in England, recovering from the deaths of my parents. I'm now able to let go of lots of things. I no longer have to impress or please them. Not that I did consciously, but I think I was always thinking, if Daddy could see me now or I wish they were here so that I could show them what I do for a living. And I do love being here. I love the hardship the convoluted National Health Service um, proffers us, the good transport system until it stops completely, and then we all curse it. The fact that one of the nurses told my cowboy that the specialist he was going to see didn't have much of a made waiting list. Only about two months, she said. Their expectancy levels are not the same as ours. And I love that. It's so stiff upper lip and make-do-ishy. My zookeeper's son is my guest today, and he's struggling to make ends meet. He may have a degree in science, which should give him a good job, but today degrees don't work like that anymore. He makes the same as my schoolteacher daughter, who's managing in an apartment with a car, fending for herself. But he's not strong on the financial side of handling his life as she is. He doesn't pay rent because he lives in our house, and he still comes up short at the end of every month. Our oldest son is moving into the house in a few weeks, and he'll be paying rent just because that's who he is. And I mentioned this to my youngest son, who told me that he was looking forward to his older brother moving in and probably giving him some pointers as to how to make living alone easier. He says, Mom, I've never lived alone before. And that's true. But he stops at Starbucks on the way to work for a filtered coffee and a bagel. The cheapest thing they have, he says. And now he's realized, and he doesn't know why it's taken so long, that he can buy a whole bag of bagels and a packet of cream cheese and tote his cafetiere to work, and it'll cost him a fraction of the coffee, sh coffee shop price. It's not so much he's never lived alone before. It's more he won't listen to us while we advise him on loan living. I'm sure we've made those suggestions, but... I suppose he feels he has the money, he may as well spend it. Budgets aren't for him, and it was one of our classes at school, too. I have faith in him, though. I'm his mum, after all. He'll be able to follow his dreams, even if they don't pay much, but he has to make his salary jive with his lifestyle. I'm usually the one who gets antsy over money, but for some reason I've decided it's not worth getting all strung up about, unless, of course, we're talking about irretrievable debt. I'm his biggest supporter, but I don't believe in forking over the money, just enough to keep him working hard, but not enough that he feels he can retire. I tell him to carry on doing what he loves most, and most of what he loves is to play. 
He just got taken on for another year as an ambassador for a rock climbing company called Evolve. He's considered part of the top team of climbers up there with Class A competitors, and he gets 70% off all their online merchandise, and I believe they're paying him a small stipend too. 70% sounds good, but you should see the price of their merchandise. He was thrilled. He has to attend a couple of competitions in his area and write an article or two, but hey, that's easy. Other things he likes to do are beer making and cooking. When he gets home from work, the last thing he wants to do is get another job to keep his bills paid. But one of these days he is going to have to get his own place and start paying rent. So I'm encouraging him to live a little bit more within his financial bounds, which means taking breakfast and lunch to work and cooking up vast vats of food to keep the fast food restaurants from beckoning. My philosophy is be happy at what you're doing, A workaholic mentality drains the creative life out of you. Seek ye first the kingdom and everything will be given to you. Matthew 6, 33. And on that note, and with my son just around the corner to talk to us after this break, I've got to go. Go fill up your cups with a nice cup of tea or coffee and get yourself a biscuit and hurry back. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. My guest this week is my blue-eyed son, Simon McNenny, a homeschool graduate who went to Collin College, our local community college, and then on to Texas A&M, where he graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in wildlife and fisheries. He works with the Okapi at the Dallas Zoo, who are found in the wild in the Ituri rainforest of the African Congo. Simon has known he wanted to work with animals since he was very young. His hero was Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, and thus his desire to be a herpetologist was born and encouraged by his homeschooling environment. He volunteered for at least 4,500 hours at the animal shelter, and by the time he was 14, he was known as the reptile expert and giving presentations at local schools. His job at the zoo is not that different from the chores he did around the house while he was growing up. He cleans and cleans and cleans and feeds and trains the animals. Welcome, Simon. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day as an animal conservationist to speak to me. How how are you? I'm doing just fine. Just 
on my weekend, and it's actually raining here in Dallas. Yeah, and it's um, morning. It is morning. It's about 10 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all good. And uh, you said it's raining. Mm-hmm. We had a, a cold front come in the other day, and we actually had snow fall for a couple hours in the evening. But Did it stick? That's about it. No, no, it didn't stick at all. It was just uh, kind of made the ground wet. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got daffodils, and I've got daffodils. We do. Yeah, and I I, I got um, three bunches for a pound, and when I got them home, they were all droopy over the sides, and I thought, oh, maybe they'll perk up. But I think what happened was they got snowed on, and yeah. so the people in the fields quickly cut them off and, and sold them. So I had to buy another yeah. another set. So That's why I cut the ones in our garden, just because I didn't want them to freeze. So Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've, mine haven't actually come up outside my window yet, and I've got hyacinths all peeking through. But, you know, the squirrels come and dig those silly bulbs up. Oh, do they? Yeah, yeah, and they eat them, so... Hopefully some of mine will come up. Well, Simon, let's get to what we're going to talk about. And I want to know, how did you get a job at the Dallas Zoo? I know that getting a job at a zoo is not the easiest thing in the world to do. So how did you manage to land your job? Well, getting a job at the zoo, is a, it's a, it was very tough. It's a tight-knit community. And once you're in there, it's much easier to move around. But I had to begin by... Uh, the zoo and I started off in the tiger primate section so I was working with spider monkeys and white cheek gibbons and um, uh, all sorts of langurs and stuff and uh, I volunteered once a week on uh, a Tuesday and I was there from 7 in the morning till about noon and basically I was following a keeper around the entire time and I would do everything they would do except for um, physically feed the animals but I would do a lot of the cleaning and and enrichment, which enrichment is, you know, keeping the animals happy by giving them different articles, to, to stuff to do in their exhibits, stuff to play with, toys, mirrors, music, mm-hmm. um, especially with the apes and the primates and stuff. They like to watch TV shows, they'll watch stuff like that, they'll listen to radio, and they'll they actually get in- enjoyment out of that type of enrichment. So, so I would what do kind that. Of radio, I, I mean, talk radio or music radio. Talk, anything. I mean, as long as you just put it on a channel, and you know, sometimes you can see them sitting there. And mm-hmm. one of our gorillas that's not that I didn't work with, Patrick, will actually he watches TV shows and he'll watch oh. cartoons and stuff. Oh, right. <laughs> so, uh, but it's just stuff to keep them happy and keep their day interesting. But mm-hmm. I volunteered for about six months, and then uh, I found an opening in the hoofstock section of the zoo. And uh, I applied for that and immediately got um, into that position. Uh, and my supervisor actually went to Texas A&M as well. So I think that, uh, that had a helping hand in my getting the position. But yeah. And then got that job. And I've been there, uh, I guess, in May. It'll be two years. So. Two years. Gosh. Yeah. I can remember <laughs> the first day that you went, went there and had that job. I can remember uh-huh. that. It was, it was fun. Yeah, and so um, when the weather's cold, now you're looking after these okapi mm-hmm. who come from um, the Congo. So uh-huh. how how do they react to really cold weather? Do they still go outside on exhibit, or do you have Some, to keep them in? They do. We we have for all of our animals. Every every animal at the zoo has a temperature guideline that we have to wait, and it has to be above forty degrees for them to go on exhibit, and it has to be above 35 degrees for them to have access outside mm-hmm. and so if it's 35 or below they're locked inside and last year we had about a foot of snow come in and they were locked in for six days really? just because it was so cold and so icy mm-hmm. 
Um, but some of them are a little more cold hardy than others. Our, our 29 year old female Okapi, who is actually the oldest Okapi in the world, um, doesn't go out until it's 55 degrees or higher. So she has a slightly different just because she is old. Um, but some of them shiver or some of them are perfectly fine and will go out, you know, in the cooler weather. But generally we have to wait for the, the temperature guidelines to, to re- be reached before animals go out on exhibit. So. Well, tell us a little bit about how your job can be dangerous working with the hoofstock, apart from the obvious being kicked, because yeah. um, the okapi are like a, like a horse, I suppose. Yeah, if you go they're behind very big. them, they might kick you. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I mean, just the the animals, just because they're hoofstock and they're they're scared of people, does not mean that you know their horns are not going to be dangerous. The, some of the animals I work with have four foot horns and straight as spears and they can you know penetrate straight through someone and uh so i mean it's just catching them if we have to do uh veterinary procedures on certain animals uh catching them can be extremely dangerous and we've had some injuries i was headbutted in the chest once and i've had a you know horn poked slightly into my arm but i mean just little minor things but Uh, it's just little things that they can be extremely dangerous, but we're all taught extremely well and all the proper techniques of handling these types of animals. And if it is too dangerous, then we will have to use a, a narcotic type um, sedative to sedate the animals. But mm-hmm. that can be a little more dangerous and um, actually have more of an effect on the animal than actually just grabbing it. That yeah. stress is way more with the narcotic. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, well, yeah. Well, it sounds exciting then. So your day is enriched when those procedures uh, come up. Yeah, yeah. Constantly something different going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about um, animals being trained in the zoo, but it's not the kind of training that you associate with a circus. You're not actually training the animals to perform in any way. You don't have no. performing animals there at the zoo. So what kind of training goes on in a zoo? The training uh, usually that we do is stuff for um, typically for veterinary work. Um, the best I- examples of training up at the zoo are with our gorillas and chimps, just because they are the the smartest kind of animals. They pick up on a lot of stuff really quickly. But we do everything from um, basic, you know, show me your hand, show me your foot, open your mouth, to having a gorilla sit with its belly forward against this, the cage to do a. Uh, um, ultrasound mm-hmm. to check for heart problems because um, bigger gorillas, silverbacks can have uh, heart problems just because they are such big animals. And mm-hmm. so we uh, we did that with Patrick, our big male gorilla, our big silverback. We did uh, ultrasound testing, and he can now he'll sit there and be completely still and let us ultrasound his his chest. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's that all has to do with training. We have to. Uh, do what is called target training, and target training is one of the most basic forms, and it's basically getting it to touch a certain target, like we have a, a stick with a tennis ball on the end of it or something, and it knows to touch that with its left hand or its right hand if we say target. And so we have to keep its hands occupied maybe so he doesn't reach through and grab or or whatever. So it's a, it's a complex sort of training, getting his hands in a certain spot and getting him to stick his belly forward. So, I mean... So, so before you started training, you would have to think of um, all of the things that could happen while you're trying to yes. um, b- perform this procedure. So you'd have to go in, kind of deciding, okay, well, we'll have to 
find a way to keep his hands occupied. So how are we going to do that? So Maybe you'd start with that, and then yeah, those are called. Uh, we have to find the incompatible behaviors. If if okay. uh, an animal is, um, if we're trying to get him to stand still and not do anything with his hands, but he keeps grabbing stuff, we have to give him something else to do with his hands. So he can't grab the thing that you're. You know, uh, uh, trying to you know listen to his his chest or something. So, give him something else that he can't do that's incompatible with the behavior he wanted to do. Oh, okay. um, so we have to think about all of that, and uh, that's where it all starts: is writing a shaping plan, which is basically a paper um, document saying this is the steps I want to take to get to said behavior at the end. Um, and those are basic guidelines and stuff that can easily be molded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And, and what about, I know that um, the keepers have the elephants trained so they can trim their toenails without mm-hmm. actually having direct contact with, with the elephant. How, how would you do something like that? You use this target, which is a, a stick. Is that how you would do that? With the elephants? With the elephants, I guess we could do it with anything, but the elephants have, uh, their target sticks are big pieces of bamboo uh-huh. uh, that maybe have a taped end just to give it a... a uh, a definite point that the the elephant has to touch, and it's uh it's getting them to focus on a certain object, and we get them once we get them to target, then we get them to target with their foot to a separate target stick, mm-hmm. so maybe a shorter stick with a different color tape on the end, mm-hmm. and so we would target their foot, and they would lift their foot up and place it maybe on a hay bale so that it's resting on something, mm-hmm. and then we're able to do work, and this is all behind bars. This is all. Um, protected contact, which is a new a new thing that a lot of zoos are starting to be pushed towards just for safety, is the protected contact instead of free contact, which is where you would actually go in with the elephants. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just a matter of targeting and figuring out what behaviors you need and trying to shape it. And if they offer it automatically, it's trying to capture that behavior. If they automatically lift their leg up, get them to do that on a cue so that you can get them to do it whenever you need them to. And so this is something that um, keepers would go in and work with the elephants on a on a daily basis once they've learned the 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 the, the trick or or whatever you call it. Yeah, um, yeah, they would continue to do it so that they can reinforce it so that at any time for anybody they will do this if if the yeah. cues are given correctly. Usually, usually with uh, with these type of training behaviors, you have to have a, a primary trainer mm-hmm. who. That, so the animal can build a relationship with because an animal is not going to trust just anyone mm-hmm. to you know lift its foot and to to be vulnerable to just any any person. So they have to build a trusting relationship, and that's one of the first key things. It's just working the basic behaviors, you know, targeting or or turning around or walking away or backing up, mm-hmm. and you got to learn the basic behaviors first with that person, and then they start building that trust. Yeah. And so you know once that once that thing is built up, then they. Do they do work the animals daily, and if not, you know, once a day, it's two or three times a day they get a training session in. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. And do they get rewards, the food rewards, if they're doing something correctly? Oh yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's the whole the whole uh, concept of positive reinforcement. That's mm-hmm. uh, one of the, the the best training techniques right now. Is as uh, constantly rewarding is is. Um, Instead of doing a punishment type system where an animal is, you know, hit for doing something that they didn't want it to do, just ignore that behavior. Wait for them to do what you wanted wanted them to do, and reinforce them. You have to give them a bridge, and then the reward. The br- bridge would be good, and then you give them an apple or something. Mm-hmm. So you talk to them. You give them verbal cues. You talk 
verbal cues. Uh, well, the cue would be the the foot, and the the elephant would lift the foot, and the clicker or good would be the bridge, and then the reward comes directly after that. Well, um, I'm talking to my son, Simon McNenny, who's a zookeeper at the Dallas Zoo, and we have to go on a really quick break, but we'll be back in about 90 seconds, so don't go far. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Why do I feel so lousy? Why are my medications working? Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on Tuggynet.com. The author of the book, Help, My Body is Killing Me, Solving the Connections of Autoimmune Disease to Thyroid Problems, Fibromyalgia, Depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better, to make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on Togginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's the Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. Well, I'm talking to my zookeeper son, Simon McNenny, and we were talking about training animals in the zoo. And now we're going to talk about a different kind of training. Last year, Simon, was the first year for the bird show to actually come to the zoo. The bird show usually goes to the state fair um, of Texas every October. It's it's there during the month of October. Mm -hmm. But the bird show came to the zoo last year at about this time of the year, wasn't it? So tell me, how and why did the zoo get the show? Uh, The zoo got the the bird show because of Steve Martin, who is a a well-known animal trainer um, so not they, steve martin the actor not steve martin the actor no okay. <laughs> but this guy uh, has been, has known um the people at the zoo for many many years and the director of our zoo was able to talk him into producing a bird show for the mm-hmm. for the zoo mm-hmm. and that show went from um roughly the beginning of june or no the beginning of may until uh the end of september mm-hmm. of this past year um, so it was there most of the summer, and uh, they then went straight to the Texas, the State Fair of Texas, mm-hmm. um, for that bird show as well, which has been going on for, I believe, 22 or 23 years now they've been going there. Really? Really? And so that's been a contract that Steve has kept up for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how they got the show up at the zoo, and it's it was quite a success. It was a great show, and it brought in a, a lot of people and a lot of business. And and so did they have to do something special, like build a special um, area in the, within the zoo, or were they able to do it just somewhere in the zoo? They were able to. They, they actually converted our old um, bird, one of our old bird areas, into a 
um, a stage with um, a water feature, like a river kind of running in the front of it with a small little waterfall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then behind that, the behind the scenes area was um, big flight, uh, big flight cages, big aviaries that they mm-hmm. were able to put small cages in, you know, to separate um, specific birds. And then they had a completely separate bird aviary for the parrots. Mm-hmm. And the parrots were able to kind of fly around free in there. And they had little places to go sleep at night. Mm-hmm. So they did. They converted an area, and they actually did quite a, uh, an amazing job at converting it and making it fit with our uh, with our zoo. So and so, who did it? I mean, did the zoo do this, or did Steve and his team come in and decide how they wanted it to look? I believe Steve and, and the crew came in and, and uh, designed the area, or kind of put their input in. But the zoo was the one who uh, who built it and had had the contractors come in and and figure out the the best way to to set it up so mm-hmm. so i'm zoo. curious how, how do you transport that many birds well they just actually came back for this year's show it actually starts two months earlier this time and it starts in the uh the beginning of march but they just transported 50 something like 56 birds um exotic birds and then 40 some odd pigeons mm-hmm. um as well as 14 rats they just transported them from Orlando, Florida, all the way to Dallas, and it was a two-day drive. And they have a massive trailer that they um, are able to transport all of these birds in, and they all have their own carriers, their own crates that they sit in, and they get fed on the road and watered and everything. So, so why did you? Why did they have to bring their own rats? <laughs> they just just because that's part of the the comedic the comedic part of the show. Oh, oh! So they don't just train birds; they've actually got little oh, they rats train, going they, they train rats, and we uh, we have alligators that swim through that water feature that I was talking about. They have yeah. six foot alligators, and then they this year they're actually trying to get uh, capybara, which is you know the the swimming the big swimming rodent. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So they're getting one of the two of those. They're getting two youngsters that they're going to train to swim in the water feature as well. Huh. So that's kind of a neat. But they do train birds, but they can train basically anything that they want. Okay, so a tr- training technique will work with, with a lot of animals. Yeah, the, the positive reinforcement tra- will train, you know, anything from birds to small mammals, large mammals, to children, to adults, mm-hmm. anyone. It's just a... It's, <laughs> Yeah. 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 Well, it's it's a really good way of uh, positive a positive way of reinforcing appropriate behavior or desired behavior. Exactly. All right. So you the bird show is now in the zoo and it's getting ready for its second year. Mm-hmm. Um, for people who haven't seen bird shows, could you tell us um, something impressive that happens or maybe um, a funny thing that happens? Well, Steve Martin's bird show is known for free flight birds, which is very rare. Not a lot of people do it, but it, it's giving the birds the ability to fly away. And that's how strong this positive reinforcement bond is with people, is that all of our birds, the birds at the show, can literally fly away and they would never return. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of a neat behavior that not a lot of people get to see is um, is hawks flying and stooping low over their heads or parrots looping above their heads and, and ha- having the free flight ability. And uh, they do behaviors such as with um, um, trumpeter hornbills, which is a, a rainforest-type bird that will go up and, and fly and catch flying insects 
uh, out of the air and they do a grape toss with that. So this bird will also eat grapes and fruits and they throw a grape as high as they can up in the air and this bird flies from their hand, catches it and lands back on the stage. And it's kind of a very neat behavior and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So so what they're doing is um, taking what would be a bird's natural, natural. behavior and turning mm-hmm. it into something that they will do for a cue, on a cue. Um, yeah, di- for a cue you know, and they for, can direct for it. The, the food, yeah. yeah and so that's, the, that's the, the key thing is it's the education that we are trying to get in to the show is uh, is bringing the natural behaviors, the the silent flight that owls do. Owls have special feathers that enable them to fly with basically no sound whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And they've trained the birds, the, the owls, to fly literally, you know, inches above people's heads, and you can't hear them coming. Wow. And so that's kind of a neat behavior to see and to actually witness the the silence yeah. of them. So and so and so while they're doing the show, are they actually teaching the audience too? Yeah. You know, oh is, yeah. Is there talk going on between the the person that's doing it and the audience? Yes, there is a constant communication dialogue that they use, and uh, they they try and do interaction with the public. Like I mentioned with the owl, they uh, they do have two volunteer participants come up on stage and uh, sit right in front of a stump where the owl is going to land, and the owl flies directly in front of them and lands on a perch right above their heads, and so they get the opportunity to to teach and to to get the pictures of these animals up close. So. Gosh, that's really interesting. I can imagine how fascinating that would be for uh, young children and, and everybody really to watch, um, you know, pigeons or parrots. Oh, yeah, you said pigeons, but parrots flying overhead and looping. How would they train a bird to do something actually in the air? I can imagine being able to train a bird to do something on your hand, you know, to fly off and land somewhere or uh-huh. on a perch. But what about doing a trick in the air? How would they start doing that? We have uh, – we uh, they would take, a, say, a parrot if they want a parrot to loop above the head. It's uh, It all starts off with the bird flying from one perch to the person's hand mm-hmm. and, and building that reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And then maybe put a pole in between them mm-hmm. and just a, a straight up and down pole that the bird might have to take a slight loop around oh. to get to the person. Mm-hmm. And the person keeps moving around that pole, and it's the positive reinforcement of making sure they come around the pole instead of just shortcutting and going to the other side of the pole, mm-hmm. which might be the quickest way for the bird to get to your hand. Yeah. So it's training it, and then you finally get it to make an entire rotation around, and you just keep moving until the bird realizes that it has to fly around this pole, and they learn. It's You'll, you'll see the, the light bulb go off in their head, and they realize, oh, I have to go that way mm-hmm. in order for me to get my reinforcement. Mm-hmm. So you, said, so you said they bought pigeons this time. No, why? Why pigeons? What's this? They brought pigeons. pigeons. They, they did bring pigeons last time as well, but the pigeons just uh, they add the the flair of having twenty or thirty birds fly in the air at one time. Mm-hmm. It's usually a very quick process. You see the birds. The pigeons are released from one side of the stage, and they fly across the stage in a big flock, and then they fly in and exit the stage almost you know three seconds after they were released, and they go back to their coop. But it's just a it's a, it's a, an ice. It's a something for the people to just yeah. catch their attention. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, and um, give me an example of when they would use the rats. I'm fascinated by these rats. The rats are <laughs> that's that's part of the comedic thing that we have. We have vines, big uh, grape vines, going across the back of the stage, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the lines is, you know, when they came to the zoo, we had this massive rat problem. You know, but then we we brought the hawks and stuff, and we've had no problems with rats and stuff since. Mm-hmm. 
and it's with the hawks and the owls and stuff there because the hawks, an average hawk can eat up to a thousand mice in one year uh-huh. out in the wild. And, mm-hmm. and it's at, at that time that the rats run across the back on the grapevine and, oh. and the kids all start pointing and laughing. Oh, look, there's rats. And, oh, and the people on stage are like rats. Oh yeah. No, that problem's behind us, <laughs> but it's the rats running behind them. So it's just a little comedic bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's thrown funny. in there. So funny. yeah. So, um, you've got different kinds of birds and um, maybe some of these big birds might want to, um, attack some of the smaller birds. So are they kept separate and how are they kept separate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the, the birds like the raptors are, are kept separately from the other birds, the parrots, the crows and, and ravens and such, just because they do have that natural instinct to hunt, mm-hmm. um, those smaller birds. And so if, uh, if a hawk is too full and it doesn't want to come out of a tree, um, then they can't do any other bird throughout the day until that, that hawk is secured. Oh. Because the bird will come out of a tree for that bird, but it will also attack that bird if it gets the opportunity yeah. to. So we, they have to be very careful of where birds are placed and, uh-huh. you know, and if, if one gets untied, cause usually, um, hawks and raptors and stuff like that are not kept in a, uh, a, an enclosure. They're kept on a perch with mm-hmm. their, equipment which is uh their anklets and the jesses which is our leather straps are mm-hmm. tied to the perch so they're kind of positioned there and they don't they don't particularly want to move but mm-hmm. when they're up in the tree they're free to do whatever they want to so yeah, yeah yeah all right so they have to keep them separate so i mean a show could be ruined if if you suddenly had a situation exactly you yeah have to close down the show for the day oh, yeah we did so. have the last year they had the bald eagle that they have flying um they had her fly and she landed up in a tree she was up there for a little bit, and they had to cancel the rest of that show mm. just because that eagle was up in the tree. Mm. So, mm. yeah, oh, that's good. That's good. It's, that's, it, nice that's one of the unfortunate thing or the difficult things about working with free flight birds mm. is having those fly offs. So, well, it's, it's called live live exactly. show. You know, it's, exactly. It's, you know, it couldn't be. Can't get any more exciting than that. Exactly. All right. Well, Simon, <laughs> I know that um, Steve Martin has. A ranch, I suppose, what it's called. He has a yep. base in Florida Correct. where he um, breeds his birds and, and holds training sessions and educational se- sessions and mm-hmm. um, everything. And um, you were invited to Florida um, uh-huh. to participate in the session that has just occurred. And we are getting ready to go on a break um, in about um, 40 seconds. But I just want to, you can quickly tell us how you got invited to Florida, or at least start to tell us how mm-hmm. you got invited to go to Florida. So I got, I was invited to Florida because my, my girlfriend is the supervisor of the show in, t- in Dallas, mm-hmm. at the Dallas Zoo. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve knows me from through meeting her and from working up at the zoo. Mm-hmm. And so he invited me to come to this workshop, and it's a workshop and uh, completely dedicated to training professionals in the zoo world how to train properly train animals mm-hmm. with positive reinforcement and it was a a five-day training session or training workshop that we went through and mm-hmm. it was quite in-depth so yeah so um whereabouts in florida was it it's in uh, just in winter haven uh, in winter haven florida which is just outside of orlando okay All right. Well, I have to go on a short break again. And um, Simon and I will be talking about his training workshop um, in Florida when we get back. So go get yourselves another cup of tea and we'll be back in just a moment. How do you handle toddlers, teens and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler. And we'll be right back after these. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. 
Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. So, Simon, you went to Florida and you're going to this training workshop, and I know that there was some classroom work. I hope there wasn't too much. Tell us what your day was like. Well, our days consisted of, of getting there to the ranch at uh, about 7.45 or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would always – they provided us with a fantastic breakfast full of bagels and fruits and oatmeal and coffees. And we would load up on our foods and sit down at our tables. And we would have a – the morning session started off with two hours of lecture time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the two hours consisted of either Steve or Susan Friedman, who was one of our other – um, teachers of that class uh, would would do a two hour lecture, and then after that, we would be given a training demonstration by Steve to show kind of what he would be looking for, maybe in this certain training day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would go off, and we each had a challenge bird, and all of these birds were chosen um, basically by the people that were by all of us. Um, people attending the workshop, we had ideas of what we wanted to train. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to train a macaw, and so I was given a a green wing, a young green wing macaw as my as my bird that I trained this entire workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but we each had a challenge bird was the group bird, and we had a blue throated macaw, which is one of the rarest macaws in the world. There's only about 150 in in the wild left. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we each, we all got to train this one bird to do several different behaviors over the course of the five days, mm-hmm. but we each had our own separate birds, but, mm-hmm. um, we would then have, uh, two hours of training or two and a half, about two and a half hours of training before lunch. Okay. Then so they would... let, let me stop you there. Yep. So I know I asked you to tell me about your day, but I'm going to have to, in, uh, you know, sort of stop you. Uh-huh. So you said you have a group bird. So how big uh-huh. was your group? Our group, uh, this one consisted of five people. Okay. Four of us were, were people. Uh, two, two of us were from the zoo, from Dallas Zoo, that were able to go to this workshop. Mm-hmm. Two actually worked for Steve's company. Mm-hmm. And then one of the guys, the other guy was uh, from Hungary. And uh, he was a zookeeper from over there. And he came over for this workshop. So oh, five right. people total. So you had five people. So you had one bird that five of you collaborated on training. Mm-hmm. And called the challenge bird. Yep. Was there any reason why? Is this an experienced bird who knows the ropes and? He, yeah, they they generally had been trained before. Um, 
but it was mainly Steve would give us a challenge to train this bird to go from one perch and scoot all the way over to the other perch uh-huh. with a certain behavior. He would give us a behavior that he wanted us to train with this bird. Okay. And then the next day he would say, okay, now change the cue. So okay. instead of touching your nose, uh-huh. move your hand to the right or something like that to get the bird to move. Uh-huh. So those so were the challenges. So each day you would build. And so at the yes. end of the, the, the week – this bird was able to do maybe several things. Several different things or with a certain cue, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you had your own bird. Yep. And so how how did you work? Were you all in the same – there were 20 of you total at the workshop, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So were all 20 of you in this one big place with all of these birds flying around or how did that work? They they have several buildings over there at the the ranch. Um, It's a massive facility. I would say probably around – 40 acres or so, mm-hmm. um, but they have several buildings with huge flight flight cages. So mm-hmm. I'm talking 40 feet long by 20 feet wide and, you know, 30 feet tall or so. I mean, big aviary flight enclosures. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the birds were spread out all over the place. I mean, we were in our, our smaller groups, our four and five people, mm-hmm. but we, we could be spread out over the ranch for quite a bit. So mm-hmm. uh, we weren't we weren't crammed or anything. We had plenty of room and space to do everything. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you had a macaw, mm-hmm. a little green-winged macaw, and what? it was just a year old, right? Yep. And had it ever been trained before? No, he hadn't been trained uh, anything before. He had just been born, like I said, the, the previous year, and mm-hmm. um, but he was actually quite a big bird. I mean, he's one of the they're one of the bigger macaws, mm-hmm. um, and I ended up I named him Marvin. Yeah. So he was my my bird that I trained, and we went yeah. through quite a few behaviors together, actually. So. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. before we go go into that, so after you've done, you say you've done two hours of lecture, now you've got two hours or two and a half hours of the on-hands training, yep. then what did you do? Did you have lunch? We had lunch, which was provided every single day. We had, you know, uh, Italian food and Mexican food and everything mm-hmm. all laid out for us. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we had another two hours of lecture mm-hmm. and then another two and a half hours of, of training that we were able to do. And so the lecture, the lecture portion, did that kind of set you up for what you were going to be doing with the training, or was that just for the whole week and from beginning to end you would know everything there was to know about behavior and how to deal with it and how to train? And yeah, it, at the end of it, we that's the we had learned everything we would need to know or or we could know in this short amount of time that they could teach us. Mm-hmm. But they did; they formulated the lesson plans each day to um, for the for the lectures to play into the the training mm-hmm. for the day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was very well organized and planned out for us. So did you have to? So when you were training Marvin, uh-huh. were you able to come up with something that you wanted him to do and make your plan? Or yeah. were you already always told exactly what you had to do? Well, uh, I was asked at first what to do, and um, I hadn't trained anything before, so I wanted to learn the basics. And so we started off with um, getting him to shift left and right on the perch. Okay. And that was very easy. It was, just an, it was a matter of me holding a seed or, or a peanut to the left and cueing him to go left. Mm-hmm. And he picked these behaviors up really quickly because they, mm-hmm. they know what the reinforcement is. Mm-hmm. And so once it was from there, we were able to figure out maybe more challenging behaviors, such as a spit spinning around on a perch, mm-hmm. doing a three hundred, a three sixty. Mm-hmm. Um, and we trained him that, and over the course of the week, we were able to link several behaviors together. So, right. so what did you have him doing by the end? By the end, we had him. He would fly from my hand to the perch. 
um, and he would walk across the perch to a rope, climb up a rope to the to another perch, mm-hmm. and once he got up there, he would do a, a 360 spin, mm-hmm. and then he would wave with his left foot, uh-huh. and that was all on one cue. And what was the cue? It was just me sending him to the perch uh, off my hand, and I would. Uh, he knew once he got to the perch that he was supposed to walk over and do the rest of the behavior. So you say sending him to the perch with your hand. What do you mean? He was sitting on your hand. What would so you he have sits to do on my hand. hand? Yeah. So he sits on my left hand, and with my right hand, I, you know, stick my my pointer finger out, and I kind of do it in a circular motion, just with my finger right underneath my left hand. Oh, okay. And that's that's the sending the sending cue that they use with the the company. Okay, so that's universal there. That's kind of a universal thing there, at least. Yeah. Um, and that was his basically his cue and. Uh, I had other cues for each individual behavior, mm-hmm. and I had to cue him for every one of them at the beginning when he when he was first learning to link them all together. Mm-hmm. And I would slowly fade certain cues out until he realized that he had to do all of them to get his reward. Oh, okay. So. Well, that was interesting. So you got him mm-hmm. to fly, f- go from your hand onto a perch, walk the end of the perch, yep. climb a rope to another perch, do a 360, and wave his little claw his little foot yeah. yep his little foot. and so he's actually coming to dallas in in may and he's oh, going to yeah. be in the dallas zoo show yep yeah do you think he'll remember you i think he will i mean they do that's what part of the whole workshop was was building the relationship with the bird and yeah. the from day one when i first went in there and started working him he he re- he recognized me on the second training session of that first day mm. he knew exactly who was training him so he flew straight to me Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of fun to see that relationship build so quickly. Mm. And so birds, can they have multiple relationships with different trainers? Oh, yeah, they can. It's just uh, it, it has to, if uh, someone else was going to train Marvin when he comes here to Dallas, they're going to obviously have to put a little bit of work in there at first just to get him used to them. Mm-hmm. But, yep, no, they can definitely have multiple trainers. And- okay, so as a group, you had mm-hmm. this other bird. So um, did you take it in turns to teach them separate cues, or how did you do it as a group? Yeah, so the first day, our first cue was to get him to do um, a, a, a circle on the perch, a 360. Mm-hmm. And so we got him to do that, and once he learned that one pretty quickly with the cue, uh, we would point our right pointer finger down by our hip. We would just point it real quick, and he would do a 360. Mm-hmm. And then the next challenge was to change that cue from the right finger point to our left finger touching our nose. Mm-hmm. And we trained that in the, the second day, and that was someone else training it. Okay. And so then we wanted to add a second obstacle into it, and we had to shift him from one side of a perch to another. And once he got to a certain location, then he would do his 360 or something. Mm-hmm. And so we trained that, that link up. And uh, one of the hardest challenges for that I actually had to do for this, this challenge bird was you'd use something called negative reinforcement, mm-hmm. which is where there is a stimulus that he wants to avoid and get away from, so something he might be scared of slightly. And mm-hmm. we uh, we used a Coke can, and so that just involved me use, holding a Coke can in my right hand and kind of showing it and maybe moving it closer to him until he started moving away from it. Mm. And once he got to his perch, then I would reward him when he got there. Yeah. And then so that was my challenge that I had to work on with him. And it was that was kind of difficult. And it was interesting to see the negative side of reinforcement and then the mm. positive side. Mm. Mm. So So yeah. is, this the, is this the one where you got him to pull up a, a rope? 
Oh no, that was our. That was one of the other trainers in my in my group. He actually trained a raven to fly to a perch, pull up a bucket, a little tiny bucket on a string, and pull a washer out and fly to a crate and put the washer in a bowl inside the crate. He had to open the crate up himself. So. It was pretty crazy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So just really quickly here, um, we're running out of time. How do you get a bird to do a 360? How do you do that? Do you just hold something above their heads and turn it and make them go around? Uh, That's a way. That's a way of doing it. Or we typically would go underneath the perch so the bird would look down. Mm -hmm. And a bird is very aware of where its tail is. And that was something I didn't know. I just didn't think about it. And so... His tail doesn't want to brush on the on the perch, so that's why we go under because he will bend down and lift his tail up. Uh. And you basically would reward him for maybe going a quarter of a turn, good, and then maybe half a turn the next time, good, maybe half a turn again, and then start making it further around three quarters, and then a full rotation. Mm. And you just start fading out the the hole your arm going around. You just fade it to a cue, just with your p- finger to point, and you have to wait for him to figure it out and. It's a kind of a process that you have to just be patient with and watch and be observant. Yeah, well, it sounds fascinating, Simon, and I could carry on talking to you for a lot longer, but we've run right out of time. Um, I've been chatting to my blue-eyed younger son, Simon McNenny, who graduated from homeschool, the local community college, and finally Texas A&M with a Bachelor of Science degree in wildlife and fisheries. He works with the Okapi and Hoofstock at the Dallas Zoo and has known he wanted to work with animals since he was very young. He put in at least 4,500 volunteer hours at the animal shelter, thinking he was getting out of school, so don't tell him he wasn't. By the time he was 14, he was known as the reptile expert, and now he gives keeper talks, helps train his animals, and has just returned from a week in Florida, learning how to train birds at Steve Martin's ranch. We've been learning about how to get the best out of any living creature under our dominion by using positive reinforcement, a skill we sadly lack when it comes to reminding our children of the things they've done wrong instead of praising them for all the times they've done something right in a day. Thank you so much, Simon, for joining me. I hope you have a safe and uneventful weekend with the Okapi and take care. Thank you. Bye. Well, I've come to the end of my time. I don't know where it went so fast. And um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to my son as much as I did. As I mentioned, our youngest daughter is back in town for an event this weekend. So we'll be seeing a little of her. So that's our activities taken care of. I'll be here same time, same place next week. So without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight, our four children, who are the result of that belief. I miss you through in Texas. The hardworking staff at Toginet Radio, my positive blue-eyed guest, Simon McNenny, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Anne, and in Lindell, Hannah, Tina, Rosemary, Pamela and Charlotte and many others who are part of my growing audience. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Doop, doop, doop. Doodloop. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNenny on Toginat. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So, we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNenny. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.